With winter coming, and all the health issues it brings, now's the time to make sure your immune system is as strong as it can be and to build your natural immunity. It's time to empower your immune system. Empower supercharges your immunity because it's made from AHCC, one of the most powerful mushroom extracts to ever come out of Japan. It's been shown to enhance your immune protection by over 300%, and it has the robust research to prove it. Empower is my first go-to when it comes to immune support. I personally take it daily and prescribe it to my patients in need of immune support. And who doesn't these days? If you're looking for a way to supercharge your immune system protection and build your natural immunity, Empower is the solution for you. For more information and order, go to theharmonycompany.com. That's theharmonycompany.com. Or call 800-422-5518. 800-422-5518. Use coupon code HOFFMAN20 at checkout and get a 20% first-time discount and free shipping. That's theharmonycompany.com for Empower. Welcome to Intelligent Medicine. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and in this podcast, we turn the tables, and Dr. Rob Silverman, author of Immune Reboot, who I interviewed recently, interviews me for his podcast. We cover a variety of subjects, including what mistakes do we make in COVID management, why is COVID a teachable moment for Americans' health, what are the keys to immune resilience, how can we stem the tide of ultra-processed foods, Why is the movement to curb our intake of animal protein a hype? And are we on the threshold of a longevity revolution? What are some of the ways we can extend life? And are the horizons limitless? So enjoy this podcast with Dr. Rob Silverman. Hello, everybody. Dr. Rob Silverman here, Proven Health Alternatives. I have my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. He's one of the most well-known medical doctors in functional medicine. We're going to cover a litany of things today. Dr. Hoffman, how are you? Very well, thanks. I'm happy you could take some time out of your busy schedule to be on. Let's just jump right in. I'm looking right here, and I'm, I think we should talk about the lessons of covid and the idea of immune resilience. So let's dig in. Well, of course, our our response to COVID was really botched. Uh, first of all, there were there were estimates that millions and millions of people would die in the United States, and that prompted a an overzealous response. And what we did is we kind of did the opposite of what we should do. We we shut down the gyms, we shut down the playgrounds. Uh, we kept people at home, uh, but we kept the bars open, <laughs> and we made sure that the drugstores were open so that people could buy medications. Uh, and then we tr- overtreated people in the hospitals. Obviously, there were too many deaths due to overzealous intubation. Uh, some of the drugs that were used were inappropriate. Uh, we now know more about how to manage infections. Uh, and, and then there was an over-reliance on the vaccine. We thought that the vaccine would be the end all and be all of treatment. And we disregarded other lower tech treatments, uh, lifestyle, natural treatments, uh, even some medications that are relatively cheap, like uh, ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. Although 
I don't have great faith that those are a panacea for COVID, uh, yet they have helped some of my patients. And we're compounding the problem now uh, because we continue to encourage people to take booster after booster after booster, regardless of their age and their health status. Now, I'm not totally anti-vaccine. I think that the, there may have been some benefit to the vaccine. I'm not saying that the vaccine was a net negative, uh, but we also uh, avoided talking about the hard the the side effects of the vaccines, which are very real and are a real concern. So we've minimized that. We we closed down dissenting voices that talked about vaccine harms because we wanted to have like a lockstep version of one size fits all. And we introduced it for kids for which there's very little value, citing some statistics that a few kids who had underlying medical conditions may have gotten very sick or even died, but very few statistically. So we missed the boat on that. And the big take home lesson I think from COVID is we ought to be thinking about why was America hit particularly hard? What is it about America? And in the beginning of COVID, as you might've speculated, you know, I thought, oh my goodness, there are all these people in impoverished conditions without access to medical care, uh, poor diets, uh, no medications, they, they can't get the vaccine. Uh, there's going to be massive deaths in Sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of Latin America, in impoverished parts of Asia, but that didn't happen. The per capita deaths were greater in advanced westernized countries. So what's going on there? You gotta be thinking about what are some of the risk factors that made us especially vulnerable to COVID? And they're nutritional, they're stress-related, they're related to environmental toxicity and exposures. Uh, these are some of the things that have put us at high risk. Wow, there's a lot to unpack there. So let's take it one step at a time. Let's talk about how COVID sure. possibly caused a little autoimmunity. You referenced that. And then we'll dig into um, what our other options are. But um, how did that happen? I mean, what what's the problem with the American health population? Well, I think a lot of people exist in an immune-suppressed or pro-inflammatory state. Uh, I also think that to weather a serious infection, you know, your circulatory system gets revved up, you have a fever, and a lot of people are sort of poised on the precipice of cardiovascular problems. They have hypertension, they have diabetes, they have arteriosclerosis, and these are the people who are most vulnerable. Uh, we also have an aging population who are frail. They're frail because they're inactive, they're frail because their nutrition is poor, they rely on poor quality foods, and of course, they're very vulnerable. And, and potentially, people are over-medicated in this country. There are a lot of people taking immunosuppressive medications uh, for organ transplants, but also people who've undergone cancer treatment, uh, and even people who have conditions like rheumatoid arthritis, multiple sclerosis, uh, even psoriasis, because we now tell people to take powerful immunosuppressive drugs for a cosmetic problem. I mean, look. I'm not going to minimize the importance of psoriasis, but there's a lot of people who are on polypharmacy in this country. Mm. And those are the people who are sort of the walking wounded who might be more vulnerable. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a lot of data that really reveals exactly what you say. It echoes it in that one of the side effects to a contraction of COVID was autoimmunity. Interestingly enough, you said something that was searing for me in that you were looking at some of the more underdeveloped economic countries and thought that they would be sick, yet we, America, was way ahead of everybody. I mean, there was a study that compared America to Japan, and America and Japan were vaccinated at the same rate, yet Americans were 12.4 times greater to contract COVID and 17 times greater chance of dying. But when you broke those numbers down, and I'm hoping you can piggyback on this, American men were 7.4 times more um, likely to have obesity than their Japanese counterpart, and women were 10 times more likely than their female counterparts. Then when you delved into the difference and getting to the core of what you were talking about, diet, i.e. lifestyle, Americans consume a lot more grain-fed beef, considerably more sugar and sugar substitutes, 235%. And the Japanese, on the converse, were eating more green tea, really not that much more rice, and a lot more omega-3 fish oils, you know, from wild salmon. So when you really look at it, this was uh, indicative of that American lifestyle really is not um, leading the world in anything other than being unhealthy. And I think you subbed it up very nicely. And, and you wrote about it in your book, for which I uh, interviewed you. And kudos to you for pointing out some of the factors that underlie immunity and that help us with our resilience. I think the key word is resilience and we're not very resilient. Right, and let's expand upon that a little bit. For me, resilient is the key to the immune system. It should be flexible. It should be able to produce antibodies to new infections. It should differentiate from uh, cousins in infections. Um, And our viewers really, you know, immune resilience is a new, but they'd really like your take on why Americans are not immune resilient and what it really means. Well, we often talk about boosting immunity. In fact, that's how they pitch certain supplements. They say it's an immune booster, but the immune system is not like a dimmer switch, you know, where it's high or it's low. If you can do a thought experiment, it's more like a dimmer switch in a hundred different dimensions, you know, where certain things are high, but that may suppress an autoimmune response. That's good. Uh, Certain things may be low, uh, but that may tap down the immune system. So we need a very supple response. Uh, There's a lot of difference between maximal defense versus an over-exuberant defense such as we saw in patients who were very sick, the so-called cytokine storm, where they were confronted by a virus which made some people a little bit sick, was no worse than an ordinary flu, whereas other people went down that chute, that uh, slippery slide towards uh, being put on a ventilator and put in the intensive care unit. And those are the people with an over-exuberant immune response that wasn't properly regulated. As you, as you suggest, we need a regulated immune system, kind of Goldilocks immunity, we call it. Outstanding way to describe a Goldilocks immunity. Excellent. Could you describe how the immune system is supposed to work for our viewers, you know, when it sees a foreign pathogen like a virus and even a new one like COVID-19? 
Well, to simplify it, there, there is uh, what's called the innate immune system, which is the defenses that you have at the surfaces in your nasal passages, in your mouth, in your tonsils, mucous membranes, the vagina, uh, the urethra, all the, even our eyes. Uh, and then in our GI tracts, as well as in our lungs. And this is an immune system that uh, is, is kind of doesn't discriminate in terms of invaders and offers, I mean, even our tears, our, our saliva, our mucus uh, has properties uh, like uh, IgA, immunoglobulin A, which help us repulse invaders. Okay, so that's there. But for a lot of people, that's broken down because air pollution, chemicals might damage your uh, local immune response in your nose, for example. Uh, smoking can certainly do that, will lower your barriers. And then there's a learned immune response, which involves uh, T cells and B cells. And that's something that vaccines hopefully activate, but also a prior history of infection uh, teaches our immune system that, oh, okay, here's a pathogen and we want to build our defenses to it. It's only when we don't have this learning of our immune system, for example, when the conquistadors came to America and encountered Native Americans, they had no memory of simple infections like the measles, mm. uh, and they died in droves. So this this is you know really very nuanced, complex. Uh, I think we're only scratching the surface of our understanding of it. And oh, by the way, there's a something called psychoneuroimmunology. There's a uh, brain immune system connection. There's also a gut immune system connection. It's very important. And we damage our GI tracts. That's another factor in our vulnerability to COVID is that our microbiome has been destroyed by overuse of antibiotics, by poor quality foods, excessive sugar, and uh, perhaps even chlorinated or fluoridated water. You know, these are things that may kill off beneficial bacteria. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoflavanols on brain and heart function. Cocoflavanols share a similar mechanism with beetroot. They both boost nitric oxide. Nitric oxide increases artery flexibility, which improves circulation. A side-by-side -side comparison of 10 independent studies, 5 cocoflavanols and 5 beetroot, suggests that cocoflavanols increase artery flexibility by as much as 50% more than beetroot. Lava Natural's dark chocolate bars and cocoa powder deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate with great flavor and minimal sugar. Their secret is sourcing premium high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and order, just go to flavanaturals.com. There you'll find the extensive research behind cocoa flavanols benefits and great recipes too. That's flavanaturals.com. Com. So you spoke about our immune system basically being dysregulated and not being functioning well. Um, what would you suggest for most of our viewers for a stronger immune system to build up immune system, to allow that immune system to be resilient? Well, I think we start with lifestyle and that's the simplest low tech, low cost way to deal with it. So sleep is important, adequate sleep, uh, adequate, even sunlight is important because 
it builds your vitamin D, but it also sets your circadian rhythms so that you have uh, normal patterns of cortisol, which reduces stress, going to nature. Exercise is very important, but sometimes excessive exercise can put us into an immune suppressed state. But consistent exercise is going to be very important for the cardiovascular system. Because if you have a fever of 104 and you're a trained runner, your cardiovascular system can handle it. But if you're sedentary and you have poor heart function, that might pitch you into heart failure or heart attack. Uh, and then there's, of course, diet. And diet has an impact on the microbiome. It also provides us with essential vitamins and minerals. And finally, uh, supplementation is going to be important because we can't get everything that we need from our diets, especially now with soils being depleted and people spending a lot of time indoors, maybe being vitamin D deficient and so on. That, that's a great overview. That's a, it's a great list of things. You know, for me, um, I'm going to piggyback on what you said in reference to immune support supplements. I'm a big proponent of the basics. And we've talked about this before, and you're a leader with this. I mean, you, you were right on the leading edge on which supplements as an option or um, as a medically adjacent to the vaccine, vitamin C, zinc, mixed mushroom complex. I'm a big proponent, and we've talked about a vitamin D3 with K2. Pre and probiotics, you may want to break that down in a yes. moment. NAC and liposomal glutathione, selenium, omega-3 fatty acids, elderberry. I know I got beat up, but elderberry is definitely a beautiful herb. Vitamin A. And I think some of the hidden things that most people don't talk about, something like a pro-resolving mediator, which allows for nice. the resolution of inflammation. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the supplements. If I missed any, please share a few. No, I and thought you did a beautiful job dietary there. dietary effect. Uh, well, Certainly fiber is beneficial, but also there's there were, early on, there were some studies looking at cultures that use a lot of live foods, fermented foods that in effect deliver probiotics, things like kimchi, yogurt, that's really live yogurt, not, you know, supermarket pasteurized dead yogurt. Uh, and those cultures experienced pretty good outcomes vis-a-vis -vis COVID. So we actually see that the diet has an impact. Uh, also, some of the studies looking at diet and COVID found that uh, a high percentage of plant foods made a difference in terms of COVID response. And that could be, you know, wide variety of plant polyphenols. You know, we can, we can talk about individual ones, you know, like EGCG and, you know, various uh, individual constituents of plants. But, you know, you eat the rainbow and you're going to get a lot of those different things. Plus, you're going to get certain fibers which encourage a healthy intestinal milieu, which which makes a big difference. That that it according to studies, it may even have an impact on long COVID. You know, not just whether you get very sick from COVID or die, but your likelihood of getting long COVID may be associated with some of these things. Yeah, I want to um, expand on that or have you expand on that. I'm happy you mentioned long COVID. Uh, just read an article. They said 41% of long COVID uh, patients are undiagnosed. You don't always need a positive COVID test. So what do you think is the nexus for long COVID? Well, first of all, I think that this thing about long COVID is exaggerated. And part of the reason it's exaggerated is because there's a negative bias in the media. 
So it makes for, you know, a nice Jaws story that people, 41% of people have long COVID and it's a devastating underdiagnosed problem. And it's very real. There's no question it's real. But it also, I think, is being used to encourage people to take the vaccine because when I was faced with the choice of taking the vaccine, I said, look, I don't think I'm going to die from COVID. I'm pretty healthy, even though I'm a little older. You know, I'm, technically I'm in the you know, vulnerable population, the over 65s, but I thought it was in pretty good shape. But then I, I heard about long COVID and I said, hmm, I just don't want to get long COVID. That's very devastating. But I think that's an exaggeration. But there, there are a lot of people who, through the ages, have had viral conditions, flus, pneumonia, and it's very typical after a viral illness to feel knocked out. The concern is that we have people two and three years out who are still completely uh, debilitated, suffering from fibromyalgia-like symptoms, brain fog, uh, fatigue on inappropriate fatigue on exertion, because exercise is supposed to energize you. But these are people who, just like post-Lyme patients or patients we used to call chronic fatigue syndrome patients. So there are some things that, that need to be done. We can, we can talk about those, but it's kind of a checklist. You know, I wrote a book in the 90s called Tired All the Time, How to Regain Your Lost Energy. And it, it, it might still resonate today because what I did is I constructed a pie chart of all the different factors. And I said, for every person who has fatigue, there might be a different pie chart. For, for one person, it might be 90% thyroid, you know, and if you give thyroid, perfect person's like, yeah. But unfortunately, it's usually more complex because you as a clinician know that, you know, there's a saying in, in the type of medicine we practice, uh, which is if you're sitting on four tacks and you take one away, how much better are you going to feel? And you have to eliminate all the precipitants or most of them so that people can make progress. There may still be roadblocks to recovery. So it, it, you need to take a multifaceted approach to these patients. That's fascinating. Now, um, I want to flick the switch a little bit. You know, you talked a lot about lifestyle. One of the things that we talked about before we started to record was the idea of ultra-processed foods. So how can we stem the tides of everybody using ultra-processed foods I, with the idea that 63% of the American calories come from ultra-processed food? A 10% increase in ultra-processed food consumption is linked to a 14% higher risk of mortality. Right. So two things are becoming abundantly clear. As you just stated, these foods are harmful they're probably as harmful or even more harmful than the cigarettes. Now, in the 1950s, there was a whole debate about were cigarettes harmful? And the industry put up all kinds of smoke screens to deter uh, legislation and lawsuits about smoking. But finally, it emerged that they knew the harms and still they pushed cigarettes and oh, by the way, they made cigarettes into highly addictive forms, forms that encouraged rather than limited the uptake of this killer substance, you know, which is this mixture of tars and nicotine and carbon monoxide, all the bad stuff that this delivery system gave you. By analogy, 
We now have the goods on ultra-processed foods. As you mentioned, they're very harmful. They lead to obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, gastrointestinal ailments, autoimmunity. I mean, you name it, virtually everything in terms of on the degenerative side. They now have evidence that in a way analogous to the tobacco industry, the folks who make processed food know that it's a delivery system for harmful substances that are highly addictive, kind of like cigarettes. And I think that may be the key to what will transpire in the future, because just as they took down the tobacco industry, and just as they took down the makers of oxycodone and things like that for marketing killer drugs that they knew were addictive, but they concealed it, there's a precedent for this. And I think that enterprising class action lawyers, you know, I'm no great fan of lawsuits and lawyers, but I think that that may be a tool and coupled with uh, legislators, but also with education. I think we, we need to educate the public about this and get a message about this. But it, you know, it, it, it's hard to message about something that's so addictive. You know, I think people know that fentanyl can kill you, and yet there's a record number of users of fentanyl. So it's, it's, there's got to be not just education, like, oh, it's a matter of choice, you know. You have to really come down hard on the people who purvey that and make it so that it's uh, the supply of this stuff is limited. So to recap what you were saying before about the addictive idea, the tobacco companies purchased food companies in the late 80s. R.J. Reynolds was one of the owners. And they said, how are we yes. going to sell foods? We're going to sell foods by making the foods addictive. So they used chemicals. They used higher levels of sugar, fructose, all these things that work with the reward center of the brain. So they owned them for about 15 years. And then they sold and made a boatload of cash. Now, everybody else needed now to compete. All the food companies compromised. Everybody used addictive ingredients. So they lost the health, they threw it out. And now we're at a part where we're looking at 63% again of the average American diet is coming from calories of ultra processed food. So that tobacco industry, knowing what addictive was with nicotine, translated that into the food system, yet we haven't got out of that. And I think that that's a viable statement. And I think everybody needs to know the history and the background of our foods. You know, Jack Elaine once said, you know, believe it or not, he was a chiropractor. He once said, if man makes I it, I will need it. So that, there was no ultra me. processed food. Right. So that said, so I, I, what should they eat? Oh, go ahead. Sir. No, 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 please. Dr. Hoffman, tell everybody, what should people be well, eating? Well, here's the thing. Before we get into that, I, I'm concerned about a new trend which is the, the confluence between scientists, medical researchers, the food industry, the media, which is trying to push a food agenda that is similar to the agenda that we all ought to be driving electric vehicles, we should be using solar panels, we should get rid of our gas stoves immediately. Uh, and it's a way of ginning up commerce for these new emergent industries. It's a disrupt, these are disruptive technologies. When it comes to food, they're saying in order to save the planet and for the benefit of your health, you ought to be eating less meat. Mm. And I don't know if you're 
familiar with this, but just this month, a big study came out saying that red meat causes diabetes. And if you go, if you just Google that proposition, you see virtually every media outlet is writing that study shows that uh, for every serving of meat, you increase your risk of diabetes by X and X percent. Therefore, we should all reduce our intake of animal protein. Well, fine. We have alternatives like, uh, not like uh, carrots and soy and natural soybeans, but the alternatives are, are like Beyond Meat or the Impossible Burger. And these are ultra processed foods that don't really deliver on the promise to reduce the environmental footprint in terms of the manufacturing because they're very energy intensive, require a lot of fertilizer, chemicals to grow. And the human body has never experienced that seemingly plausible mix of poor quality proteins, carbohydrates, and oils that supposedly substitute for the flavor and texture of meat. So that is a big concern. And, you know, it, under the guise of greening the planet, uh, we're giving people more and more highly processed foods. And I think regenerative agriculture is the solution to allow us to continue to have a, a source of food, which has been part of the human diet since time immemorial. And we ought to pay attention to our ancestry uh, and, and continue to consume some of these foods in healthy forms. So I read the articles also. How could they conceivably yeah. say that eating red meat increases the incidence of diabetes? It's a protein. Diabetes are based on sugar and the inability of well, to I, regulate I think, sugar. I didn't look at the study because it was paywalled and I refused mm. to pay, you know, $75 just to read a study. Uh, but when it when it's finally released in this full form, uh, I think the problem with these epidemiological studies and it looked at thousands and thousands of people so the, statistically it's very robust it's not just a study of you know 30 people uh, when you look at people who eat a lot of meat they also eat a lot of other stuff and i'm sure that you know and have patients who are vegetarians and they're very health conscious in many aspects of life i mean they, conceivably, they could be junk food vegetarians, but it's not so much what they're eating, it's what they're not eating, you know, because being careful and excluding meat is a marker for other lifestyle things that reduce risk of diabetes and other degenerative diseases. So these studies are often plagued methodologically. They're inherently flawed methodologically because, for, for example, I, I asked at a conference, I asked one of the lecturers, he said, I asked the question, will there ever be a study of people who eat only grass-fed meats versus people who eat processed meats? And he said, it's inconceivable that that study would ever be done. Mm. Because number one, uh, how are you going to find enough people who exclusively eat grass-fed meats? And number two, they're too few and far between to do the study. And I guess you could lock people in a lab and feed them conventional meat versus grass-fed meat for 20 years, because you'd have to do it for about 20 years to see an outcome. 
And, and then maybe you could prove that proposition. But he says, it, it's almost inconceivable that such a study would ever be done. So that's the problem. So for clarity, the bulk of the meat that they were talking about, you and I would assume, is grain-fed, soy-fed. Even processed. Even processed. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus the grass-fed or grass-finished type of meat that you and I consume and you and I recommend for our patients. There's a vastly different outcome, and it gets to the idea of, you know, it's not, you are not what you eat, it's what your food or your animal was exposed to, what they ate, the air they breathed, the water they drank, and that's why you talked about reconstructive agriculture. Mm-hmm. Regenerative agriculture, yeah, but it is reconstructive because it, kind of tries to replicate the way that we first encountered the tens and tens of millions of bison that inhabited the Great Plains in in, in an ecosystem where they coexisted with the grasses that fed them. And it was an ecosystem that was actually very good for the environment because it preserved nutrients in the soil. It gave back uh, oxygen in the air. It took carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And uh, we still have the capacity to develop farming that way, as opposed to the way that we do it now. If you're looking to maintain peak brain health, I'd like to introduce you to a cutting edge new brain support formula from my friends at Thorne, Sinequel. If you're recovering from a head injury or play contact sports, you should pay special attention. Sinequel is formulated with the best research nutrients that support healthy brain structure and cognitive function. Sinequel's active ingredients help maintain cellular energy production, encourage a healthy balance of inflammatory cytokines, provide energy to fuel the nerves, support neurotransmitter production, and help protect against oxidative stress. It's available in two strengths, Sinequel for Everyday Maintenance and Sinequel Plus which provides higher amounts of certain nutrients for shorter-term post-impact support. For more information and to purchase Sinequel, just go to drhoffman.com thorn. There you'll also find some of my other favorite thorn products. That's drhoffman.com thorn for the essential nutritional brain support formula, Sinequel. Let's talk. Let's change gears again. Love to cover a lot in a short period of time. Let's switch gears, change directions, and let's talk about the topic of 2023 and beyond. It's an incisive topic without question. Let's talk about longevity and see how longevity fits into our practice armamentarium, i.e. our functional medicine model. Okay, well, there's, there's two ideas about longevity. One is that we can extend life, and we are doing it by vanquishing some of the killer diseases. Uh, we're curing some cancers. We're detecting cancer earlier. That's part of it. Uh, we're also treating people who have bad heart problems, people who ordinarily would have died. We, A lot of people who would have died of infectious diseases, you know, pneumonia used to be called the old man's friend. Well, now we have antibiotics so we can extend life. Uh, the problem is that we may be extending life without extending the health span, lifespan at the expense of health span. The other issue is, is there something inherent about aging? So that forget treating the diseases that kill us, but is there an aging clock in people that we can pinpoint 
and target some of these processes so that we slow these processes so that we, in effect, extend our shelf life. And I think that's the cutting edge of longevity research these days. You know, is it about antioxidants? Is it about the mitochondria? There, there are many theories about this. Is it about immunosenescence, the decline of the immune system inexorably? Um, is it about uh, problems with uh, DNA replication? Because we know that that process breaks down as you age and repair slows. So scientists are looking very intensively at this problem. But then the question is, how long can we extend life? Is Do we have infinite prospects or is there some sort of uh, limit to that? And that's something that we don't know yet. That's interesting because there are some people out there that say they're going to live to 120. I've heard a few people. Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want 120 where I wake up on that day and I can run around the block and go to sleep that night and then not wake up. There's some others that have said that they believe that the human body or their human body will last to 180. So I don't know if we really want to uh, comment on that. But I'm curious, you know, you covered the hallmarks, some of the big hallmarks of aging. So So most people are going to say, what Mm -hmm. can we, what can you suggest to enable people to have a better health span at least? Right. Well, there's also an issue of equity because right now, a lot of people aren't getting good basic fundamental medical care. Uh, If we discover, for example, that by transfusing ourselves with vampire blood from young people, uh, as some billionaires are doing, you know, they're getting stem cells, they're getting blood transfusions, uh, all kinds of ways to extend their well-being. But these expensive high-tech interventions, will they be available to the general populace? And will there be a privileged class uh, who is enabled to live luxuriously well beyond 100 while other people languish for lack of poor medical care. Interesting. I I concur. You know, I've never told you this. Uh, My dad is a big fan of yours. He's listened to your radio show from the beginning. And um, initially, when I decided I wanted to go to chiropractic school, and first it was actually nutrition, and then it was chiropractic school, he said, if you're going to do that, you have to be as knowledgeable as Dr. Hoffman on the radio. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, I never shared that with you. So my dad says hello, and he says thank you because I was a little lost. And then I saw Jeff Bland and this whole idea of molding and melding functional medicine. So, so many people want to know what is functional medicine? How does it translate in today's needs for our uh, failing health, our failing immunity, and our desire for increased health spans slash longevity. Before there was functional medicine, which is kind of, you know, TM, it's a brand. There was root cause medicine, which I think goes back to, you know, I'm not the inventor of it. I just a practitioner of it. It kind of goes back in its roots to naturopathy, which is, has a very robust tradition in the United States and in, traditional medicines across the world is to look for the root cause and not simply to palliate problems, you know, put a bandaid on things. And so functional medicine has given us a system 
to look at various aspects of health through the lens of inflammation, nutrition, nutritional deficiencies, uh, the microbiome, uh, stress, you know, so there, there's a way to sort of chunk these medical conditions into a series of root causes that we can attack. And then the idea is we can then make the medical condition recede. So it, it's, it's a beautiful science. Uh, my criticism of that is that people who rely entirely on functional medicine may be ignoring some of the really exciting high-tech innovations that are these magic bullets. Unfortunately, most magic bullets have side effects, but it doesn't mean that we should ignore them or uh, completely forego them. So but that's one of the reasons that I brand my radio show and podcast intelligent medicine, because it means the best of high-tech medicine and the best of, of natural therapies. And I, I sometimes I critique both because I think some of the natural therapies are unnecessarily uh, convoluted and that there may be a quick way, you know, maybe there's a surgical fix or maybe there's a medication that can, can address the problem. But on the other hand, there's so much of conventional medicine that is just overkill. And there may be natural ways to address those problems with less side effects and with a, with a better fix. Ultimately, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a better and more complete and permanent fix rather than a Band-Aid that you have to keep putting on, create side effects, other problems emerge. You are without question recognized as one of America's foremost complementary medical practitioners. And to be fair, you're the founder and medical director of the Hoffman Center in New York City. You maintain a private practice there. So you're still seeing patients. You're active. Yes. You're also author of numerous books and articles for public and health professionals. And again, everybody, you have that top-rated radio show called Intelligent Medicine. You speak all over the world on different um, conditions and different topics. I just want to know back in the 80s when you made this transition, this paradigm shift, um, you know, you're a medical doctor, you're medically trained. I think you told me Mount Sinai, Columbia, et cetera. Uh, uh, Columbia what, and Einstein, yeah. Yeah, what, what possessed you to make that change? Well, actually, I went into pre-med knowing that I wanted to do integrative medicine which was a little different because some of the other doctors that were my role models, they had practiced conventionally. Like for example, Dr. Atkins, he was a cardiologist and then he got frustrated. He says, I'm not getting my patients better. I'm just, you know, putting them in the hospital and they keep coming back with the same problems. And then he began to look at natural alternatives. I knew that I wanted to do the natural approach. So I went through medical school. Uh, I kind of was a little bit of a stealth medical student because I, had to keep it a little undercover. And then when I got out, I did some basic training at NYU, Bellevue, and Manhattan VA. And then when I was asked, what sort of fellowship do you want to go into? I said, no, nah, I just want to go and practice. And they said, oh, my goodness, you you know, you have a great medical career ahead of you. So what, what type of practice are you going to go into? And I said, well, nutrition and integrative medicine. And I said, oh, my goodness, why would you want to throw away it? such a promising medical career to do that. And it was kind of a leap of faith, but I'm so happy I did it because I had a very, very fulfilling career. And I think I made a difference for a lot of people. So uh, 
that that's that's how it developed in the 1980s for me. Well, I'm happy you decided that because you know now I'm one of your uh, disciples, and I hope to be part of your cadre in the near future. In that, a very gifted disciple, I might add, because you, you wrote a wonderful book. Uh, you mentioned your book to to remind the listeners because it's a book that uh, I was contemplating writing during COVID. We had a lot of time on our hands, uh, and I wrote a lot of stuff, and uh, you managed to make it go to go to fruition. So that's quite the accomplishment. I appreciate the book that. I would wish I would have written. It's an Amazon bestseller. Um, people are going to want to be able to get in touch with you. So as we close up, mm-hmm. how can they get in touch with you? Where you're located? Um, so the best way, way is, the radio yeah, show. thank you for that. It, it drhoffman.com. And I know you're a reader of my newsletter. So go to drhoffman.com. You can subscribe to the newsletter and you'll get free content every week. And some of it, you may say, yeah, I'm not interested in that subject, but from time to time, a subject will really resonate for you. So for example, this week, writing about hydration so the importance of hydration which we didn't mention during this podcast but that is a main big factor surprisingly big factor in avoiding not just discomfort it's not just about optimizing it literally could be a matter of life and death according to recent studies fabulous now how many years you've been practicing integrative medicine since 1984, which would take us back almost, well, next year will be my 40th anniversary. Yeah. Wow. Fabulous. Well, I can tell anybody, you know, you're a New York City guy. I really appreciate that. Anybody who needs some integrative help, Dr. Hoffman's the guy. Numerous books, great radio show, prolific as the day is long. I'm honored to have you. I look forward to having you back again. My name is Dr. Rob Silverman, Dr. Ronald Hoffman. Proven Health Alternatives. Thanks for having me on, Rod. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been my pleasure. I want to thank you for listening to the Intelligent Medicine Podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app and get new episodes automatically downloaded every weekday. And please give us a rating and review. It truly helps new people discover Intelligent Medicine. The Intelligent Medicine Podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their health care professionals for any such conditions. Finally, please visit drhoffman.com and discover everything intelligent medicine has to offer, including frequently updated, unbiased health news and fully vetted product and supplement recommendations. You know how important it is to ensure that your supplements are genuine, safe, and effective. That's why I partnered with Fullscript, an online dispensing platform that only offers curated professional-grade brands that I know and trust. The very same supplements that I prescribe to my patients and take myself. Never counterfeit or expired, always stored and shipped correctly. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to start your free Fullscript account. Buying through Fullscript offers fast shipping, optional refill reminders, a mobile-friendly site. It's safe, secure, and HIPAA-compliant and offers world-class support. Fullscript 
also gives you access to my custom targeted supplement protocols that combine the products that I recommend to address specific needs, heart health, immune support, and much more. Just go to DearHoffmanStore.com to sign up for your free Fullscript account. You'll get access to the supplements and features you need to help you achieve your wellness goals. That's DearHoffmanStore.com. DearHoffmanStore.com. 